Hey y'all, Jack here. I was lucky enough to be part of a conversation with Jeremy Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer of WisdomTree, as well as Jeremy Siegel, renowned finance professor at Wharton. We recorded it on September 1st for their podcast, Behind the Markets. And we also were streaming live on Sirius XM Radio. We talked banks, the economy, labor market, the stock market, and much, much more. Enjoy. Welcome to Behind the Market here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist at WisdomTree, Jeremy Siegel. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offers or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We had a massive week of data, Professor. I know you've been looking forward to all this economic data and uh, curious to get your takes on all the responses from jobs reports to all the different things you're focused on as we close this holiday week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think obviously the Fed and uh, everyone should welcome the data that we saw. Um, uh, let's start with with uh, today's employment report. Um, uh, certainly the numbers look low on the hiring, especially with 110 revision downward, uh, we read that, that a lot of that was due to strikes and the closure of the trucking firm. Um, we also had one tick uh, increase in hours. So it wasn't that weak, but it definitely confirms the downward trend in uh, the hiring. But the most welcome is that jump in the participation rate are you know to the pre-pandemic uh, levels that had been stuck at a lower level, and that's why we got a jump in the unemployment rate unexpectedly, actually to the highest in one and a half years. So there is what's good about this is there's people coming into the labor market. There's slack in the labor market. This is something that the Fed looks at more than anything else. Um, uh, or certainly along with everything else, is it how it's it's not tight as a drum anymore. There are people coming in. The demand is 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 down because productivity is up. Um, so a combination of those two things, and then of course that uh, corresponded to the Jolts report that came out earlier in the week. Again, a big drop in job openings um, uh, from the peak. Uh, I think it was a two-year low. So. Oh, the fears of too light, tight a labor market are definitely faded by uh, the uh, the data today. Uh, in contrast, real data continues to come in strong, not overly strong, but you took a look at jobless claims, again, slightly below expectation. Um, um, you, you took a look at um, um, uh, the, uh, the other real data, uh, it's it is you know it's not it's not coming in probably at a five percent GDP in the third quarter but I could be two and a half to three percent so with little inflation the inflation news again the wages came in one tenth below expectation uh, that was a a, a very uh, favorable um, sign that we got um, uh, however we we on the whole we don't have prices of goods falling much anymore. Uh, we got the ISM report, and the pricing part was 48, which is just about equal prices rising and falling. We've got stability of commodity prices. 
and yet we got an easing of the labor market. Um, uh, so this is why we had a very strange bond market today. At first, I looked at the uh, number of uh, hirees and said, oh, my God, that's low, and, and uh, bonds jump. But then as I look below the data, they say, you know what? This could mean strong real GDP growth. And I, you know, the bonds turned around, uh, pressured uh, the high-duration assets such as uh, NASDAQ and others, uh, while, while at the same time, I think we've got one of the, the largest uh, jumps in uh, the Russell 2000 that we've had in, in, in quite a mile. Some of that might be a little bit of rebalancing. We do have, uh, you know, August and September. But um, uh, I think this confirms the story. Real interest rates are going to stay high for a while. Productivity is the reason. It's non-inflationary, um, and um, uh, that non-inflationary uh, number is uh, means to me that the likelihood that the Fed will raise uh, in September 20th is now almost nil. Um, and in fact, it puts uh, the um, uh, November uh, increase uh, in doubt. Professor, we also got the Case-Shiller housing data this week and, and your money supply numbers. Um, Case-Shiller went up another nine-tenths, but still negative. The apartment list data came in negative on the year. Yeah. Are, are you still surprised about this housing resilience? I, I am surprised because? about the, that. Um, yeah, and Case-Shiller is just below the all-time high. He has two indices. And it's just below that all-time high. Yeah, um, this, uh, again, we've got a, a housing market. Uh, again, not many transactions, but they uh, demand for housing is strong. Let's mention the money supply. Those two things came out on Tuesday. A tiny increase um, um, for the month. Uh, banks are still losing deposits. Um, in fact, since uh, the Fed started raising interest rates, uh, we got a report that almost a trillion dollars of uh, deposits have been lost, and almost all of it has gone into money market mutual funds, as you would expect, and, and other liquid assets. But uh, that it has somewhat negatively impacted M2, but we, we do have a, a rise in M2. Since it hit its bottom, M2 is increasing at around a 3% rate. I would like to see it a little bit stronger. Uh, but again, we have movement away from those deposits because, you know, many banks are not paying competitive rates and uh, people are moving into alternatives. So I, I would say um, this this report is good for profits. Uh, I looked a few days ago at the 2024 S&P estimate of profits, uh, and actually it is uh, higher now than it was a month ago, and that's a rare situation. Because um, normally, as we know, as time goes on, the farther out estimates go down. That means stronger economy, better profits, good view towards productivity. Um, you know, equities can hold in here. The only reason we didn't have a big rise today, of course, I think, was that, that rise in, uh, uh, in the 10-year rate when, uh, when the bondholders said, hey, there, there, is a strong, uh, there is a strong economy ahead. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at Case Shiller being so strong, um, um, uh, continuing to rise. Um, demand for housing is, uh, listen, housing and stocks are the best, the best long-term hedges against inflation, and that's what, that's what people want. 
And um, they're taking it out on the bond market, saying, golly, you have to give me a good, decent, real return uh, because, uh, you know, you're not, you're, you're not going to, you're not hedging me against uh, some of the risks that, uh, um, that, that I want hedged now. In other words, the, the, the pre, uh, the, the weight on the inflation risk has gone way up, um, over the last couple of years compared to where it was. And as a result, I think, uh, bonds have suffered, uh, along with the stronger real growth, which of course also brings about an, a rise in, in real yields. I've got my guest for the hour, Jack Farley, who's the host of the Forward Guidance podcast uh, with Blockworks. Jack is uh, here with me in at the shore for the for the weekend. But Jack, do you want to just uh, say hello to the professor? Any any questions in your mind? Sure. Uh, hi, professor. It's an hello. honor to be here with you today. I've got uh, two questions. Uh, one is you mentioned the downward revisions in uh, non-farm payrolls. Uh, can you tell us about the significance of that and what it indicates for the economy, uh, as well as can you comment on the fact that I, I think that uh, non-farm payrolls have been downwardly revised every single month this year. So what, what can we yeah. draw from that? And then also the 0.3% uh, uh, increase in the unemployment rate from 3.5% to 3.8%. On a historical basis, what does that uh, indicate because it seems like a pretty you know non-linear jump. Does that uh, you yeah, increase it, it, at all uh, your concerns about a recession? The biggest, yeah, these are good questions. And, and people say when there's five tenths of a percent, which we haven't had, that raises the probability of recession. Um, it was a lot of again people looking for work, not immediately finding it because we did. It wasn't caused by so many layoffs. I mean, we had positive net payroll, and we had one t a tick up on on hours worked. Uh, so people are coming into the labor force. I, I, I really look at this on the bright side. I, I mean, first of all, it does have political significance, too, because, you know, I mean, the Republicans can make a lot of deal. Ooh, what is this is the highest one and a half years on the unemployment rate. You know, you know, Biden, Bidenomics is, you know, is what uh, the Democrats are relying on. Is it really doing the job? Um, uh, uh, certainly, uh, again, you're, you're, you're going to see it. But I think what, what basically the Fed will welcome it saying, yeah, this is, um, uh, this is actually the, the looser labor market that we are seeking. And thank goodness it isn't really because of the jump in productivity affecting the real GDP. So uh, I think that from the Fed's point of view, this is a good result, loosening of this labor market. Again, we're not getting loosened of output. Uh, that 110,000 revision downward, yeah, it was rather big. I understand, and I haven't gone into all the details, but some of it was, again, the strike, the, the rider's strike plus the, uh, the yellow truck um, trucking strike, uh, not strike collapse, uh, until these truckers are rehired, and they will be. Um, and, and that has caused uh, some some of that downward revision. So if you take a long-term look, we are running at less, if I do the math right, at half, less the, than half the payroll growth uh, in terms of just numbers uh, than we did in 2022. So this is the, the type of thing that the Fed really wanted to do. It's doing it without a real sacrifice uh, in output. Um, it's now it's, it's it's it has raised unemployment, but it's it's raised it because at this point, not because of layoffs, but because uh, we are enticing more people into the job market. Now we're enticing more people into the job market, maybe because they're running out of 
uh, COVID uh, excess savings. There's been a lot of talk about that. Um, uh, uh, whatever the reason, people entering the job market um, and, and they don't find jobs immediately, they will find them, uh, is a very positive development for uh, the economy. Um, uh, and I, I think it, a positive development for, for corporate profits. And, and, uh, I, I don't know. You had a second part. I don't know if I got both of the. Oh no, your you, answers you, in. you got both of them. Thanks, Professor Jeremy. And so, as, yeah. as you just sort of wrap up your 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 views, we wrap up the summer. As you think about some of your your seasonality, September's been a weak month of the year from some of all your work in in stocks for long run. Yeah. Um, as you think through the year end and how far we've come, what's your base case for the rest of the year here? Yeah. So. Uh, Jeremy wants me to give my four-month forecast. <laughs> well, well, Professor, I mean, you're, you're well known for your book, uh, Stocks for the Short Term. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, I believe it or not, I I think we could have another five percent, maybe even ten percent rise in the month. Maybe not quite ten, uh, but uh, another five percent over a four-month period. That's uh, that's pretty good. That's uh, quite a nice annualized rate, given already we've had a pretty good year. Um, I, um, uh, you know, anything geopolitically can happen. Um, uh, you know, uh, we we got a, the, one of the strangest political uh, political uh, presidential races I think in our history. Um, what developments might occur there? Um, Maybe that'll have to wait till 2024. Everyone will anticipate it. Um, but, uh, you know, at this particular point, you know, when I a couple months ago shifted my opinion saying, okay, this economy can stand higher real rates than I thought. Um, I'm not as scared of the real rates uh, as I was earlier when the money supply was collapsing and we had that tremendous rise. Doesn't mean I welcome them. I don't think the Fed should raise any more. Probably shouldn't have even done the last quarter. But the, you know, I think all the data, commodity prices, home prices, initial jobless claims, state of the labor market, um, tell you that uh, the economy is holding out. And um, yes, rise in delinquency rate. Yes, there's some, you know, student loan repayments on on the future. There are bumps there in the road. That's why the Fed should absolutely stay packed. But at this point, I don't think that's going to derail a positive GDP outlook for not only this third quarter, but also the fourth quarter. Well, Professor, we'll let you get to your holiday weekend. Enjoy the beach. Thank you for staying with us and uh, have a great, great weekend. Thank you, Jeremy. You have a nice uh, Labor Day weekend, both of you. All right, Professor, have a good one. Uh, I'm going to turn the conversation to Jack. So, Jack, well, welcome to – this is your first time here at the Jersey Shore. First time we you went to Atlantic City last night. Oh, it's it's a beautiful place. I, I love Atlantic City. Thanks so much for having me here, Jeremy. One thing I want to know about is just the, the business cycle and the, the stock market. I, I was actually just reading uh, – Stocks for the Long Run, uh, the professor's book last night, and he did a lot of interesting analysis about when stocks bottom and when the economy bottoms. And you know, as it comes to you know, little surprise to people, the stock market you know decline is followed with a lag by an economic decline. So I'm I, uh, curious, 
what did the, the stock market decline in 2022 indicate? And what does the, re- I mean, did we have kind of a mid-cycle slowdown and now we're at the beginning of a new business cycle or are we headed for a recession? I mean, I want to I wanna know your view as well. There's a, there's a piece from the NFIB saying, you know, you had real troubles hiring workers, but you're now be- getting back to levels that were basically pre-pandemic. So maybe the, the situation is, is improving. It's improving from the side of employers being able to get workers, but I guess there's a worry that it's too much of the opposite side of the unemployment rate could could take up. I, I, you know, hadn't been that worried about a recession like this this year, but uh, I don't know. I mean, this data, a three, 0.3% increase in the unemployment rate. I just, you know, ran some numbers going back to 1948 and the 12-month forward increase in the unemployment rate was, I think, 92 basis points uh, after every 30 uh, 30 basis point increase. So I, I think the unemployment rate will go higher. I mean, the Federal Reserve will welcome that. I mean, if it goes to 4.2% and peaks or 4.5%, and that is enough to tame inflation, I think the Federal Reserve and many people will be happy. But I, I think there is a worry that it kicks up to a, to a higher level. Although on a secular level, you know, there is a shortage of workers, and that will you know, be true on a secular level, uh, even if we're in a cyclical slowdown. It's interesting to see if you can condition that little study on what the professor was saying of how much is actually people letting people go versus people coming back into the labor force. So that's sort of an interesting question because it, it, it's less of we're firing people mm-hmm. versus, hey, people were on the sidelines and coming back. Yeah, so I guess it's uh, the numerator isn't going down; it's the denominator is yeah. going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, you know I posted about that on Twitter, and you know when you, when you post about something on Twitter and you know it might imply a certain point of view, you're, there's always a, a thought in the back of your head of oh well, there's this nuance that unfortunately doesn't fit in the 200 characters <laughs> or whatever. And that was yeah, absolutely right. The the labor force participation picked up as well, so it's the not, denominator getting bigger, not the numerator going down. Yeah. So let's. What, so in terms of the the markets bottoming or going down, anticipating the recession, there is this question of it, should the MBR have called last year a recession? We had two quarters of negative GDP growth. Was that the recession and the markets were trading down? Or is these – why haven't these higher rates hurt more is always the really big question. Even on Twitter, we're talking today, there's – you know, the Apollo economist Torsten Slock put out this piece on – the amount of interest payments versus interest collected. And there's some people, I mean, the Wall Street Journal did a story that showed how few people have been susceptible to these higher rates and saying, hey, people locked in these low mortgages, they're collecting all this higher interest income. On balance, are, are households better off or worse off? And there's a group of people who are definitely better off. I mean, if you had a mortgage and refinanced and you had a lot of cash, you're putting it in treasuries, government's paying out all this extra interest income, the household's collecting it. The question is, is anybody facing the burden of these higher rates? Torsten did a piece looking at the net payments people are making, and he shows that the net interest payments are rising. So this is kind of like credit card debt rising. Uh, They did a version with rental, net rental income also rising, uh, maybe not to the sort of highs um, going all the way back, but uh, it, it sort of does show it rising. His first version of the chart didn't include housing payments um, when he showed that the household's payments as percent of interest income was high since 1959. That didn't include housing payments, but what, even when you included housing payments, is not the highest since 1959, but the trend is is rising. 
Did you see anybody facing these higher higher rate burdens? So I think without a doubt, the one thing I can say with certainty is that the dominant or popular view 12 to 18 months ago that higher high real interest rates would crush the economy with rapidity has not occurred. And that the interest rate, uh, the, the ability of the private sector with to withstand higher interest rates is higher than it, it was expected. And, you know, it's very hard to predict things uh, with accuracy, but it, what is extraordinarily easy is to always justify things with the benefit of hindsight. So with the benefit of hindsight, now that we know that, why has that occurred? Because so many people locked in low interest rate mortgages, um, because a lot of uh, consumer debt is actually quite low. U.S. government, ex- exceptionally indebted. Uh, the U.S. corporate sector, very indebted. But actually, consumer debt is not um, huge, actually. Uh, I, I posted about, about this recently, that revolving credit, obviously, it always goes up over time because the economy grows and there's inflation. But as a percentage of disposable income, personal disposable income or just personal income, it actually uh, is lower than it was in the year 2000. From like 1950 you know, to 2000, it was just a huge you know, steady increase in personal revolving credit indebtedness, but it peaked in 2000 and it uh, flatlined to 2010. And from 2010 to 2019, it, it steadily declined and then it collapsed because you know there was a lot of money printing and people didn't really, really need to credit, I guess. And it, it, it is rising, but it's uh, you know below, below 2000. So um, I think in per, uh, per, the, the U.S. consumer is not very levered and the U.S. corporate sector is quite levered, but they termed out the debt. The duration of the debt is quite large. So the the narrative of higher interest rates will hurt borrowers is actually incomplete. Higher interest rates imposes financial pain on someone. If the debt is short-term, it imposes it on the borrowers mostly. But if it's long-term debt, if I lend you money for a thousand years and then interest rates go up, you're you, you know you're going to have 20 generations of of Schwartzes you know before before that that pain is is felt and I'm you know totally totally screwed. Um, and so I think a lot of the banks you know people the, that that the line that is so common is rising interest rates are good for banks because they can make loans at higher yields and yes there is truth to that but a lot of banks who we thought of as very asset sensitive that would just be printing money when interest rates are high and deposit costs would stay low. It turns out a lot of their book, a lot of their loan book was, you know, mortgages that they made at 2.8% or 3% or 4%. Or if they didn't make the mortgages themselves, they went bought it in, you know, agency mortgage-backed securities. Um, Silicon Valley Bank yeah. had over $100 billion worth of agency mortgage-backed securities whose value collapsed, again, a decline of 20%. It's not a co- for a fixed income, that is a collapse. You know, for stocks, it's not. Uh, and so I think a lot of banks are, a, a lot of the lenders, uh, have felt the pain. So a greater share of the pain has been felt by lenders who made uh, long-term, high-duration, fixed-income loans, and the beneficiaries, or I guess the uh, people who you know did not feel as much pain as was expected, are the borrowers because they they, they termed it out. It's fascinating. There's a lot to drill into this, particularly that credit card. You're starting to see some credit card delinquencies pick up, but it, I, I you know it, it's one of those good narratives. Say, hey, people are taking way much less credit card relative to their disposable income than they used to. I, lo- I love that kind of long-term view that you put out on, on Twitter just a few days ago. But the, you know, this, this thing about the banks is also super fascinating. And there, there always was this statement about these higher rates benefiting the banks. And now you, with, with these rising rates and there's a short-term rates and the long-term rates, what does it do for profitability? 
And, you know, I think Schwab is an interesting just example company because they, you know, they were there for a while. They were when rates went down to zero and their money market rates were zero. They, you know, the view was they their their income was collapsing because, you know, they made so much money off of sort of this interest rate spread on in things like their and their money market type strategy. Now, what's was interesting. I still think there's a lot of pressure on these banks. And actually, I tweeted out this today that how with the 5% bank that you could be earning in treasuries and banks are not paying it. I'm not sure all the pain in the banks has fully been felt. Like there's, and, and partly you see it where startups can actually disrupt because if you, if you have all these customers, you can't, the, the banks can't afford to pay everybody 5%. They would be, they'd yeah. be in a lot of trouble, a I, lot of pain. Yes. And it, it, is, it is not merely, oh, the reason my bank is giving me 0% and not 5% is because the bank is greedy. Obviously, you know, banks are greedy, but it's also that they literally cannot because they made mortgages at 3%. So their net interest margins would be either zero or negative or so small that their operating costs, they, they would be you know, losing a lot of money. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think net interest margins will continue to compress with a handful of examples. So, you know, not going to obviously name any you know, individual stocks, but uh, if people can find financial companies that actually uh, are like banks, but whether they're called a bank or not, but they have access to zero non-interest bearing deposits and they can invest that in, you know, loans or securities yielding 5%, those companies actually do benefit from rising rates. But yeah, most banks are, you know, they, they, most banks, uh, their, their deposits are, leaving them or they have to retain them with much higher rates and their deposit costs are going up faster than their loan yields are, are going up as well. And that also has to do with their, their loans are not repricing a lot because, you know, surprise, surprise, if you gave everyone a, a 3% mortgage, when mortgages go to 7%, people aren't going to pay that off. So I, 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 there's a you know fancy like economic term for this. Um, I don't know if it's adverse selection, but it's basically the phenomenon, a phenomenon that's similar of, uh, when you know you, you only everyone buys at the top or and everyone sells at the bottom like a, a you company, buy insurance companies you know they're gonna die. yeah companies tend to buy their own stock new stock buybacks which you know can be accretive to shareholders if it's like they're buying it at the cheap but they tend to do it when the stock's high and then when the company goes into trouble they're like we're pausing our stock buyback and the same thing that's is, a meme by the way I actually do a lot of research on stock buyback yeah. and actually companies on balance buy it when it's cheap. I, the, oh, okay. So I, I do, we have some research. There's a bunch of people who've done some research on this. On balance, companies are, the companies who are doing big buyback, big buyback mm -hmm. are cheap. And okay. they're, yes, there's, they're, the, the tech narrative is, I'll tell you where it started is, and, and there's truth to this too, which is that, hey, you have all these tech companies who issue stock with stock options. And what do they do? They have the management, they do buybacks offset Mm -hmm. The options grant. So there is a lot of that. I'm not going to say there's not that, um, but there is there. Is, so there's a decent amount of that from the tech executives. And yes, could could some companies they buy at high levels? And you know, people are saying Nvidia is an example of that yeah. right now. But you know, on balance, when I look at the majority, I'll call it 75% of the gross buyback, mm -hmm. the stocks are like real value stocks. I can. I think I know why we have a different view. So I, I have no doubt that you're right on the macro. And I think you're looking at the like amount of total dollars worth of buybacks. Yeah. And most of those are, you know, a handful of stocks that are yeah. exceptional cash flow machines like Apple, for example. I am, you know, 
looking anecdotally at individual companies and I'm just like, if I've looked at a company and I'm like, oh, wow, they bought their, their stock at the, at the, the top. Um, but yeah, but anyway, the point about mortgages is everyone wants a mortgage when it's 3% and everyone wants to borrow for a mortgage when it's at 3% and no one wants to refinance when they're at 7%. Uh, but banks, what, what, what banks want is not with the opposite of what they get. You know what I mean? Like they would want banks, they would want people to refinance now at 7%, but they're never going to. So they kind of, they kind of have, you know, um, negative, they're, they're short optionality, basically. You know, we mentioned that you host your own podcast, Forward Guidance. You've had a lot of really interesting conversations on the banking sector um, from from Chris Whalen to recently you had some of that, the housing uh, or the, the, the home loan banks. Um, talk about what you've learned from some of them, what you think your big takeaways from the current state of the banking system. So I think my key takeaways, uh, so I, I, you know, lear- I've learned a fair amount about the banking system since, since, you know, February, like I've kind of did a, did a crash course, which I, you know, I think if you want to cover something, you gotta, you gotta put in, put in the work. And I, uh, uh, so I think banks are a lot less asset sensitive than I thought they were. I, I took the banks, the rising rates are good for banks kind of at, at face value. So digging into the banking sector, yet they have a lot of fixed income, uh, low coupon, long duration uh, fixed income assets, and that is a problem. If if in, let's say the Fed Reserve keeps interest rates at five point five percent, and you know banks are going to have to pay, they're going to pay less than that, but let four percent. I mean, there's a, there's a chance that the mortgages that they have in the book will literally be paying less than what they have to pay depositors, which is a huge problem. And the Federal, the Federal Reserve, they do that, but the Federal Reserve prints money, so it's you know it's not an issue for them. They because they're paying you know five point five percent or around there on reverse repo and uh, excess reserves, and they're earning the very low coupons that they of the Treasuries and mortgage backed securities that they bought in 2020 and 2021. And I think that is a form of uh, money printing. That is like the Fed quote losing money is the private private sector you know gaining money. So I think that is. Is, is stimulative. So lesson number one is tons of uh, fixed rate securities that, uh, you know, the rate at which they reprice declines as interest rates go up. So it's kind of, you know, it's uh, like, a, it's, 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 it's not a good situation. Um, I would also say that I have done a little bit of digging into how banks hedge. And I think it's kind of misunderstood. A lot of people think that you know, banks should hedge their fixed uh, income security. So if they make a mortgage, they'll hedge that interest rate risk. Or if they'll buy mortgage-backed securities, they'll hedge that interest rate risk because as interest rates rise, they'll they'll decline. I mean, actually, just pick a bank and look at it. I'm going to predict if you you know someone who does this at home, the bank either is does not have interest rate hedges if they're you know a regional bank or a less sophisticated bank, um, or if they do hedge, that they are. They hedged the other way. They hedged that interest rates would decline, not that they would go up, because they had assumptions about how much they could make new loans at, at higher yields. They said, oh, historically, when interest rates went up by X, our deposit rates went up by 0.2X. And we they are, got greedy. Yeah. They and, got greedy yeah. that they didn't have to pass along the interest income. And they and and largely when you look at all the big banks today, they haven't passed along the interest. Now maybe they Yes, can people buy CDs? Do they offer money market funds? 
there are vehicles and clearly the trillion dollars that went into money market funds are people getting smarter with their cash. But I, I mean, I remember going to the investor relations deck of one of these large, small regional banks. And basically they were advertising on page one of their investor deck, how we have the lowest cost of deposits in the industry. Basically say our clients are dumb. They don't care about getting paid interest on their checking because they need, they need the checking account. It's like, well, okay, but this is their new options. Like, I, I don't think it's sustainable. Like, I don't think that's sustainable. Yeah. And either the non-interest bearing deposits leave and they, they, they are leaving. It's just a question of the rate at which they leave or they turn into interest bearing deposits and they have to be paid on them. So it's, it's yeah. not a great situation. And banks uh, are that impacts banks capital because uh, the, you know, if, if their equity is worth less, they can be, they, they can't be as levered. And the profits. So this is not, we're not, certainly we're here on Behind the Markets and on Forward Guidance. We're not trying to create any bank runs, but yeah. this is a... Sorry, sorry Jeremy. Sorry. I, there was one time during probably March or April of 2023, and I posted a factual chart saying that I think Bank of America had over $100 billion of unrealized losses for its health maturity securities. I mean, that, that was a fact. It's yeah. on their annual report. Um and someone in the Twitter on Twitter commented and said, Jack, how dare you? You're trying to start a bank run on the Bank of America. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you actually think that I am going to start a bank run on one of the world's largest banks? Like you are you're so, so out of line. We're not trying to do that in any way, either of us. Um, but, you know, there is this general sense that the banks aren't paying what they should be. And so people need to look for those options. And um, it's just a tricky dynamic. And I, we, I don't think any anybody thinks their deposits aren't safe. I think it's a question for shareholders in these banks, what is the profit stream going to be? My, that's my view. Yeah, and I, I'll say this. If the economy avoids a recession and we have a soft landing scenario or a no landing scenario, I think banks will uh, do well because Yes, if you buy a if you make a mortgage at three percent or you buy a mortgage by security at you know three percent coupon and then interest rates rise, you're sitting on a huge loss. But if by the same token, you're actually making more. If you were to write down that um, uh, to oh it's now eighty cents on the dollar, your actually net interest margins would go up. So so people say oh the the banks are quote you know they're they're underwater, they're unrealized under, under, if you take into account their un, um, unrealized loss securities. They, you know, the, their equity would be worth less. And it's like, yes, but if they did that, their net interest margins would be wider. So it's a, it's a two-sided coin. And I think the real disaster scenario for banks is if credit losses increase, because so far that has been avoided. Time. And banks now, right now, are tra- trading at a cheap price-to-earnings multiple. But for banks, that literally means nothing because a bank's earnings, its equity is all based on like hundreds of assumptions about prepayments about you know deposit betas and 98 other things uh so 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 if, if one of those assumptions is not true for example silicon valley bank their assumptions about deposit beta were wrong and you know 100 percent of the market value of that stock is now gone and you know it no longer exists so um so but but yeah so but banks have actually scary kind of banks have had this issue and they've been struggling and the stock prices have been struggling even as credit losses have remained very very low um Yes, uh, auto loan delinquencies and credit card delinquencies are have gone up. But again, this is a you know a theme that I've been trying to talk about for the past few months. Is it's about rate of change? Uh, no, sorry, 
it's it is about range of change, but people can overrate rate of change. And like, if a seven foot man uh, shrinks by two inches and becomes six foot ten, he's not a short man, you know. And likewise, our credit card delinquencies and all sorts of delinquencies were exceptionally low during 2021 and 2022, and they're rising. They are quote normalizing, so they're now at 2019 levels. And yes, if you draw a line on that chart and you just extend it, they might go a little bit higher. They might go a lot higher. I mean, I, I don't know. But um, I think that's always just important to remind people that they're, they are normalizing and that delinquencies for you know, credit cards are well below uh, you know, pre-GFC pre GFC levels, and they're at you know, 2019 levels. So, but yeah, if credit becomes an issue and the unemployment rate ticks higher, then, that, yeah, then, then the banks uh, were going to have a lot of issues. And you've had a number of conversations on this, and you've been tweeting about this. Tell us what some of your – will you see the perceptions and risks of the commercial real estate space as, as you're looking at it? Yeah, so first of all, anyone who says that this is like 2008, I would say uh, challenge them and, and tell them this, that in 2008, it was residential mortgages, which were packed into the bank balance sheets all around the world, uh, subprime mortgages that went bad. Uh, people were – delinquencies, people not paying their mortgages. Now – for residential people living in a house that they own, their families, those mortgages uh, delinquency rate is at a 50-year low. So residential, as much as uh, banks and people who made mortgages have a problem from the interest rate rising, so that's worth less. Households they, are fine. Banks, they, they are be, those mortgages are being paid off, and they are paying off at the highest rate in 50 years. So that is residential real estate loans. Then there's a world of commercial real estate loans, which is for uh, pretty much everything else. So multifamily, which is you know fancy for apartment, apartments, um, and then there's offices. Uh, industrial warehouses, uh, hospitality, so hotel, hotels, and uh, you know, fan, it, commercial real estate is not just one thing. So there is a few issues with commercial real estate. There are the fundamental issues of each asset class. So, for example, uh, multifamily, the fundamentals have been exceptionally strong in 2020, 2021, and 2022, as you know, uh, there's a shortage of housing. So, you know, apartment building owners were able to raise rents, which you know sucked for people who who rent. But it's uh, very good for that asset class, for the fundamentals of that asset class, whereas offices has been very challenged as you know, work from home after, after COVID has become more popular, popular and more acceptable. Um, so transactions in that market have been uh, uh, sclerotic, let's, let's just say it that way. So those are the fundamentals of the asset class. But then there's the financing, which is true for all aspects of commercial real estate and, and all assets, which is that as interest rates have gone up, the expected returns of those buildings uh, should go up commensurately. Um, you know, if you were investing in an apartment complex that had a 3% expected return, and now interest rates are at 5.5%, you would expect the value of that property to go down so that the re expected return would go up. Because From who, now, if you're buying now. Correct. Because who would, you know, invest in a property with a lower yield than a risk for U.S. Treasury. So would go the thinking. And then also with commercial real estate, uh, so much of it is, is using borrowed money where you know, people have equity in the deal, their, their own money or investors' money, but then they borrow money from a bank. So banks have a lot of commercial real estate uh, uh, loans. And real estate loans are there really three, I mean, there are more, but three main lenders to commercial real estate, the commercial CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed security market, uh, insurance companies, and then uh, banks, and as well as uh, pri private debt funds and sort of uh, you know, pri private equity, that kind of stuff. It's, it's all, it's all uh, roped in there together. So I think you have that fundamental issue of borrowing costs for owners of commercial real estate who own the equity have skyrocketed. 
and the returns that they could expect, oh, we're getting a 7% uh, you know, cash flow yield, and then we're paying 2% on interest. Now they're paying you know, 5.5% exemption. And it is, they use, unlike residential mortgage, or, uh, you know, residential mortgage borrowers to buy a home for 30 years, in the U.S., most of that is fixed rate, uh, long-term 30-year debt. For commercial real estate, a lot of it is floating rates. So they have a five-year, five-year where um, you have a five-year fixed payment and then a five-year floating rate. So they are on the hook for, as interest rates rise, their interest rate expense goes up. And if you look at some of uh, some office ETFs, office real estate investment trusts like uh, uh, Vornado or SLG, they've actually hedged a fair amount of that. I, I you know, I'm not going to give numbers on it, but a lot of that is hedged. So when I was, you know, worried about it and I looked into it, I said, "Oh my God, that's great that they've they've hedged uh, a lot of the, because they hurt as interest rates rise." However, I've asked commercial real estate people about how common is it for uh, the you know, developers and and people who own equity in commercial buildings to hedge interest rate risks and I'm not getting a lot. I'm I'm not, you know, I mean, they basically say, I don't know. Um, so it's a good series that we could, you could do on the podcast. Got to find some people to talk to. I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, you, you tweeted out about a week ago and this is one of those sort of like, is this a doom type chart, but sort of 70% of office loans that were set to mature in June have entered maturity default. The borrow failed to pay principal. Sort of like the classic, we're going to hand the keys back to the bank because Hey, now at new financing rates, yeah. you can't. The interest won't cover the 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 revenue. Yes. So this is a highly specific part of the commercial real estate market. So I don't want to say this is all commercial real estate by any margin. It's probably like you know one or two percent. But it's office loans that are made in CMBS deals. So not insurance co companies, not the banks, just CMBS deals. And yes, for uh, the the month of June, seventy percent of the office loans uh, entered maturity default, which means they were supposed to pay back their money and they didn't. And, you know, if you or I do that, or most people do that in a commercial transaction, I mean, we get paid, charged a huge fee or, or interest rates goes up. I mean, that's definitely what happens with credit cards. But I mean, I think in commercial real estate, it's, you know, you borrow, you know, if you owe $100,000, you're, you're in trouble. If you borrow $100 million, the bank's in trouble, you know? And I think the bank, you know, they, so they do, um, you know, modify and extend where they just kind of say, I mean, it's called extend and pretend, Oh well, we'll extend the duration longer. So it's uh, that's that's what's called the maturity default, where they still are paying the interest payments, but they've just extended the duration of when the actual loan payment is due. And yeah, that's pretty worrisome. And actually, I uh, have it on good authority that the date—I don't know if this is public yet—but the, the data for August, August or July, but the most recent month where the data is available for the pre for the not the prepayment rate, the actual payment rate is 16 percent. So of of the CMBS office loans that expired that, that expired that matured in in the most recent month, only 16% of them actually were paid off. So some percentage of them were modified and extended, and some percentage of them entered maturity default. Uh, so yeah, it's it's not looking great. And does J.P. Morgan own this? Does Bank of America own this? Yes, but it's only commercial real estate is a small, small fraction of the loans on most big bank. I think on most uh, you know large GSIB like globally systemically important banks or whatever. Um, I think Wells Fargo has a, you know some commercial real estate loans, but a lot of these loans are you know if they are owned by banks are owned by regional banks, where uh, so so not the biggest banks. Banks such as, I mean I'm not going to you know name them, but banks that are probably you know. The 11th largest through the 50th largest, not like one through 10. And that, those were also in the headlines this week. They're talking about 
trying to raise the some kind of financing and capital requirements on that. That's going to, but it's going to take time to phase in. But there's, it seems like there's some new regulations coming for that group of banks as well. Um, as, as you think about some of your other big conversations you've been having on forward guidance, tell us some of your your favorite uh, conversations that, or, or things that you found to be most insightful recently. If you if you have a take from from somebody on the show, um, well. I want to give people a, a sense of who's coming up on the podcast. Uh, I'm, next week, I'll be talking to Milton Berg, who's a technical analyst. I think he's actually one of only a handful of technical analysts that I've had on the show. It's not really uh, a topic I, I cover that much. But he came on in January, and he was the most bullish bull in the world. I don't think a bullish, more bullish interview has ever been done. He said, he said, Jack, I challenge the Bears. The Bears are going to get destroyed. Uh, I don't understand their arguments. This is the market where you want to own and you want to be long. And if you're not long, you're wrong. And uh, that thesis played out uh, perfectly. I mean, we you know, have had a exceptionally bullish, uh, you know, uh, past past eight months, past you know, close to a year. And so he's coming back in September, and I want to ask him what what his view is on. Um, I'm also talking to a, a commodity trading advisor who just just trend following, and that that's interesting. A fixed income strategist, the head of the fixed income strategist for Schwab, she's coming on. Uh, and then I'm actually talking to someone who's involved in a, one of the largest hedge fund deals, uh, I think, ever. Uh, and he also runs a, a, a very large and successful um, uh, mortgage real estate investment trust company. Uh, so that, that's kind of what I got coming on next week. And then uh, on the week of uh, September uh, 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th, I'm going to be in Austin for uh, BlockWorks event Permissionless, which is all about crypto. Not my you know area of expertise at all, but it's you know it's good to catch up and see what's going on in that world as well. Very interesting. Yeah, there's been a lot of news uh, on that. You know, in terms of the conversions for the ETFs, there's all sorts of people now speculating what does the grayscale versus SEC lawsuit mean. Um, and I think it's going to be fascinating to play out. The SEC uh, delayed a bunch of ETF applications from moving forward um, in in the, in the short term, but it, so. The story hasn't. It's not like an overnight. You know, Grayscale wins uh, the lawsuit, and yeah. and the judge gave some harsh rebukes about, you know, the the reasoning um, for SEC to not uh, approve some of these ETFs. So it'll be interesting to play out. I, you know, you saw some of the discounts on the closed end funds, which couldn't convert converge. Um, you know, so they were because they you know aren't freely convertible. These some of these closed end baskets. Uh, they sell at a discount, and uh, some of those came back closer. I'm, I'm very curious to see how this plays out, and and does the ETF bring more demand for Bitcoin or not? But this is definitely focal for a lot of the crypto community. I, I know on on here on on SiriusXM 132, I've heard a lot of these interviews uh, about this issue. Yeah, and just to, for folks, so uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust back in the day, it was trading at a massive premium. To how much Bitcoin it actually had, a uh, 40% premium, maybe maybe even higher, way way back in the day. But then as Bitcoin ETFs came, uh, the the future Bitcoin ETF came, as well as people just started buying Bitcoin itself, I suppose it, that turned into a discount. And then during the bear market of last year, that discount went to a 40, almost 50% discount, which meant theoretically, if you could own GBTC and then short uh, Bitcoin. And then eventually you'd get your GBTC back. You would make that money, although I'm sure it's very 
you know, and somewhat costly to put on that trade. Uh, I think in, crypt, in the crypto world, a lot of people actually got into some sort of arbitrage trade and that led them to have, get a huge amount of trouble. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 it is converging. So it's now approaching, it's now at negative 20% uh, of discount. Um, but I want to ask you, as someone who knows a lot about uh, exchange traded products and e- ETFs, how do you think this is going to impact Bitcoin and GBTCs? I both want to ask you about how GBTCs, you know, net asset or its assets under management might shrink because people pull money out of it, which might, I don't know, cause Bitcoin to decline, as well as, is this actually good? Wasn't that actually beneficial for GBTC to charge uh, to get fees based off its uh, net asset value rather than the actual price, um, right? It's sort of interesting, um, in my view, thinking about this sort of market implications because people have been somewhat trapped. They couldn't redeem, which is why I was at a discount. So people were selling it, which is what caused it to go to the big discount. And they were doing all sorts of hedge trades to try to, to play this convergence of the NAV at a discount towards it coming back to fair value if there ever was an ETF conversion allowed. But what would you do if you're buying this thing at a discount to get it to get the fair value, you have to redeem, actually. You have to sort of sell, ultimately. It's sort of, you're buying the, sh- the shares, they have to give it back, get back to Bitcoin, and you're sort of, there's less Bitcoin in the fund. So that that potentially, to me, is not a guaranteed net bullish scenario. I mean, now there's this question of long-term does bring it to the ETF bring a level of new access to people and sort of it opens it up to a new audience, um, you know, that, that wasn't previously buying. And there is an element of the ETF, people like the vehicle, they could buy it in their brokerage account versus having to open a special Coinbase or other mm-hmm. wallet. And so there's a level of comfort there that I think people like, but, um, you know, I, I, it, I, it's, a, it's a very open question. I mean, I think the actual conversion of of some of these closed-end funds, I'm not su- so super super bullish, but we shall see. I mean, the, the long term will be quite interesting. Jack, I wanted to talk to you about your future, what you do with Forward Guidance, but we're, we're out of time. But where can people find your work? Uh, people can find my work on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps at Forward Guidance. My personal Twitter account is Jack. Farley 96 or my ex account and uh, the podcast account is at forward guidance. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me on. It's been a blast. I'm glad we, we got your first trip to AC, first trip to the beach down here. First trip to Cam Kotak in Maine. It was exciting to meet you and uh, keep up all the great work you're doing. Some, it's one of the podcasts I've become a very big fan of and, and great to be here with you. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great holiday weekend, everybody. 